0: Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, hispanicnpr.com This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Edna Chun, Ph.D., who is Vice President of Human Resources and Equity at Broward College. Today we will discuss Bridging the Diversity Divide, based on a book by the same title that she co-authored. In her job at Broward College, a large urban community college with four campuses and 60,000 students in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Edna oversees recruitment, professional development, staffing, diversity, and affirmative action, employee and labor relations, compensation, records management, and benefits administration for the college. She has over two decades of human resource experience in public research universities in the California, Oregon, and Ohio State University systems. She holds a Doctor of Music degree from the Indiana University School of Music. Edna is co-author, with Alvin Evans, of Bridging the Diversity Divide, Globalization and Reciprocal Empowerment in Higher Education, published last year. They also co-authored Are the Walls Really Down? Behavioral and Organizational Barriers to Faculty and Staff Diversity, published as part of the Association for the Study of Higher Education, Higher Education Series, two years earlier. The book discusses subtle and covert discrimination in the higher education workplace and provides a systematic institutional approach to diversity and inclusion. It received the Francis G. Hansen Publication Award by the College and University Professional Association for its contribution to the human resource profession at the organization's 2007 National Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. Edna is also co-author of articles on Talent Management, Human Resource Strategies, and Diversity, published in Hispanic Outlook, Insight into Diversity, and Diverse Publications. She was recently unanimously elected to serve on the editorial board of the Association for the Study of Higher Education, and she is a regular contributor and member of the editorial board of Insight into Diversity magazine. Edna, welcome. Thank you so much, Ms. Delgado. I'm
1: delighted to be in conversation with you about this exciting topic.
0: Now, before you authored this book about bridging the diversity divide, you wrote a book that essentially talked about the wall of diversity and what the status of diversity in academia was, if I understand correctly. Would you tell us a little bit about the situation as it stands today, What is the current situation of diversity in the university systems today? How do you see diversity in academia? Well, uh, we
1: have significant challenges in academia still because for the last, for example, 30 years, uh, the ratio of, uh, let's talk about African-American faculty, Hispanic faculty, and Asian-American faculty has not substantially changed over these three decades, so uh, while universities have grown and added faculty, um, that has not been reflected in increasing percentages uh, among the faculty ranks of minority faculty. Women have done a lot better uh, and have made tremendous strides, although there's still, you know, a way to go. But uh, for minority faculty, we still have not made a dent. In the institutional ranks, and for administration, the same holds true. We have, uh, you know, very few college presidents, uh, particularly um, who represent the minority ranks relative to the overall college presidencies. Even on boards of trustees, we're still underrepresented. So there's still isolation at higher levels in organizations of minority women, particularly, and lack of role models. Um, at those levels, and for our students as the um, population of students becomes increasingly diverse and the United States by 2050 will be a majority-minority uh, nation, uh, we're not prepared in our institutions of higher learning for this dramatic demographic change that's occurring in the United States. So we will have to uh, make tremendous efforts to diversify our faculty administrative ranks to reflect the demographic makeup of the United States population. And that is not the case today,
0: unfortunately, in um, institutions of higher learning. Now, this may sound like a very basic question, but bear with me. How do you measure diversity? In other words, if you look at a university system, is it very easy? Just as we might look at a corporation, for example, is it very easy at first glance to just look at a roster of names and say it's diverse or it's not diverse? Or do you have to dig deeper? How do you measure diversity so that you can reach the conclusions that you just shared with us that say we are not diverse in the system right now?
1: That is a very interesting question, and, and you will hear, um, Ms. Delgado, a lot of the you know, pundits speaking about diversity. It includes diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, uh, diversity of point of view. My and my co-author Alvin Evans' view of that is that if you have not attained diversity that includes women and minorities, uh, you will never really truly attain representational diversity either in the workplace or in higher education or in any other organization because true diversity has to be reflective of those attributes. It has to include, Women and minorities, and so if you have only diversity of perspectives and diversity of geography and diversity of um, economic backgrounds, you are not still missing the salient attributes. And a lot of the literature, um, also Elena, uh, refers to the fact that. The the visibility of certain characteristics has resulted over time in our history in discriminatory practices. So you will find, for example, and this is something that people really really are not aware of, that um, there has been significant discrimination against minorities in the United States in our history, and that has been based on visible characteristics. So if we do not include those visible characteristics in our definition of what is diversity, we'll be missing uh, the major area that we have to
0: include in our organizations today. Is it an easy process, measuring diversity
1: uh, we, uh, fortunately, uh, in the area of employment in um, public entities and corporations, uh, uh, have a wonderful executive order, Executive Order 11246, initiated by Lyndon Johnson at the behest of President John F. Kennedy, and uh, the forerunner of it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which requires us, because we receive federal funding, to uh, have an affirmative action plan. And in instituting that plan, we have goals that we need to attain. And we have very um, uh, aggressive instruments that help us measure our representation, whether we've met our goals. We're required by law, by federal law, to make good faith efforts. And uh, in my own position here at Broward College, since I've been here, I've used that as an impetus and a measuring stick for how where we've gone and how far we've come. Um, and, and that is a very statistical model based on a job group. So for faculty, uh, what is the representation of minority faculty available to us, those people with PhDs in the United States and, for example, in a discipline like English, um, and if that statistical majority or uh, percentage is not reflected in our hiring patterns, then we will have a goal to reach that availability level. Um, and so it's a very fine-tuned instrument, um, and it's measurable and our faculty understand it in, in terms of an empirical basis for where we need to go. It's not the sky's the limit and because often people are very afraid, sometimes they'll say to me, well, does that mean we have to hire all minorities? No, what it means is that for a job group where you have representation available in the United States population or wherever you recruit from, that you should at least reach that level of representation in that job group. So it gives us a very fine-tuned measurement for
0: whether we have made any progress in this regard. What is the ideal level of diversity? In other words, if you have 100% Level whatever we're looking at, whether it's faculty or leadership positions in in academia or in a corporate environment, is diversity at ten percent enough? At twenty percent? How do you determine how much diversity is enough diversity?
1: That's an interesting question. I think as um, corporations, particularly, are have a global reach, um, they will find it imperative to uh in, increase diversity to um, deal with their consumers and uh their products, the advertising of their products. Um and there will be uh you know that pressure, the market pressure, to really uh change the demographics internally of, of corporations, firms um in their global reach and even within local Companies. Uh, there's no local company today, Elena, that doesn't have some global competitor. And so they have to be uh, represented uh, to, to reflect the constituencies they represent. In higher education, the same thing. Our student populations have become diverse. And um, I think, uh, for example, uh, the number of Hispanic students at public research universities has increased by 53% Well, we need to show that, reflect that in our classrooms. Um, If we don't have at least that level of diversity um, of our clientele, um, we will be missing an important point. But this is a long journey that uh, we still have a long way to go in many, many, many respects. So um, we're trying incrementally and um, aggressively to uh, increase uh, our current representation, particularly at higher levels of our organizations where this has not traditionally been the case, where there's a historical legacy that has been
0: different. And why, if we go back to basics, is diversity important? Why should the academic environment shift to accommodate more diversity? And why should companies even those who cater to diverse audiences, why should they consider diverse representation in their ranks, not just in their consumer audience, but among their decision makers and their employees and their board of directors? Why should diversity play an important role in academia and in the business world? What is the business reasoning, the bottom line reason behind the promotion of diversity, if you will?
1: Um, That's a great question, Elena. Um, It reflects the global entity that we now live and work in. Um, We can no longer be isolated. And One of the points of our book is about how globalization has transformed the workplace. It doesn't matter where you're working now. If you pick up the phone, if you uh, call any of the major banks, if uh, you know, you will find someone, or the airlines, you'll find someone answering you in a foreign country who has assumed uh, an American accent and uh, who has an American name. Uh, you you may not know where they are, but um, corporations today are staffed, have outsourced uh, overseas tremendously, and um, it doesn't matter where you work physically anymore. One of the major points of our book is that globalization presents a compelling business case, a rationale for why organizations have to be transformed, because it no longer matters what your race is, what your ethnicity is, what your gender is. The work can be performed by anywhere, in any country, at home, uh, by different individuals with different backgrounds. And... It is, in the words of Fareed Zakaria, uh, a post-American world. It's no longer the world of exclusivity and privilege. It's a world in which China, India, other major countries are producing many of the products that we now consume, and so the world is not being driven by, um, you know, our consumers necessarily, but. It is a world where population, demographics, location, the speed of the Internet has brought us together and in in a network in which we cannot afford, the United States cannot afford to um, uh, not... Uh, tap into the rich diversity of this country. It is a business imperative for all organizations, whether they be commercial, private corporations, or firms, or higher education, which has been a bit slower to recognize this uh, great change in our 21st century.
0: Edna, there are many people out there who are afraid of diversity, some who believe that... People of diverse backgrounds who reach certain levels do so because of artificial instruments like affirmative action, but that they are truly not qualified or not competent or both, and that in fact what they do is they push them back because they are forced to place them in positions of power. Uh, but that they're actually not qualified. What would you say to those non-believers in the concept of diversity? Is there truth to that? And if so, how do you deal with it? And if not, do you have any data to support that?
1: Yes, thank you for that question. It is a common question in our uh, circle of higher education when we uh, post a position and when I, you know, introduce the position at various meetings, I will frequently get that question in our faculty senate or in other arenas. Uh, you know, we have unqualified candidates who are diverse. Do we have to hire them? Um, that is probably one of the biggest myths about diversity that we need to debunk, because in my view, and uh, there are significant statistics to support this. For a diverse candidate to be selected, they generally, as the literature will show, have to be more qualified, in fact, twice as qualified, work twice as hard, uh, and have more experience, more degrees, and so forth, to be considered qualified for the same, uh, let's say, an executive position. Um, There has been little outcry about unqualified majority candidates, which, in fact, ironically, has been the case for the past, I don't know, couple centuries. Uh, But when diverse candidates appear on the scene, um, there is still the concept that they could only have gotten there if if they were affirmative action candidates. And what we write about, too, is about the kind of exclusion that that produces for that particular person. Um, In higher education, there's a lot of literature about that, Uh, being perceived as a token, how difficult that is for the person who's involved in that, but what it also speaks to is the fact that the organization has only hired one or two diverse people, (laughs) and that's why they're isolated, um, and that they need to uh, bring in a critical mass. That's the term of art, a critical mass, because until you begin to change the demographics of the organization you cannot expect one or two people to make a difference. In fact, it often places an onerous burden on those individuals who are invited to be on every minority task force, diversity council, and be representatives of spokespeople in addition to their regular duties that they may have. And this has impacted faculty, particularly, have written about this particular experience they've had as being the only ones. But um, no, in fact, uh, Elaine, in answer to your question, for the most part, uh, as someone who has been in this field for, as you mentioned, over two decades, minority candidates are qualified. Our problem is we can't get them interviewed. We have to get them interviewed to get them hired, and uh, people have often presuppositions about minorities. There's uh, data that suggests that, for example, minority names are a way that people are screened out of hiring processes. Uh, clear data suggesting, for example, that this impacts African Americans particularly, and uh, less likely to be called in for interviews. So there are pre-assumptions and stereotypes that get in the way before people even get into the hiring pool. So there are significant barriers still existing in the hiring process that have to be overcome, and one of them is this uh, enormous myth that minorities are not qualified. I believe it to be exactly the opposite
0: that in order to even reach a point of conversation, the minority candidates have to be overqualified or certainly more qualified than the people they're competing with.
1: Yes, I believe that to be true. Um, You know, there's uh, uh, ample literature and accounts of people uh, you know, having to work harder, work smarter. Um, there's a wonderful study of corporations that was done uh, by a gentleman at Harvard um, showing the slow rise of minority executives compared to majority executives. Um, and the data shows that the, the pathway to success is much longer and the toll that minorities pay is time. He talks about it as a tax of time. Uh, you know, it takes longer for minority to make their way to the top, um, and, you know, they spend more time getting there and
0: have a much more difficult time getting there. And in your book, you talk about something called reciprocal empowerment. Does that play a role in this issue that we're discussing, and, and what do you mean by reciprocal empowerment?
1: Elena, thank you for asking about that. Um, reciprocal empowerment, you know, and, and to put this in the positive, um, what our research emphasizes is how to change the environment, to transform the environment. And we talk about uh, the principles of reciprocal empowerment that were advanced by um Isaac Prilotensky and Lev Gonek, two scholars. Uh, one is now a vice president at Case Western Reserve University. The other is at the University of Miami. Basically, it's a democratic principle, and um, there's a lot of literature, Elena, that talks about what a successful workplace is and, and why reciprocal empowerment is important is because it affects the workplace results. It affects the commitment of employees, their engagement, and their and their ability to share their competencies and their talent and talent is what drives business success, and so you want your workplace to be a place where people feel empowered, and and when you talk about reciprocal empowerment, um, I often in you know seminars I give like to to ask people that are sitting in the audience, you know, uh, in what ways are you able to. When you share power with someone, how does that make you feel? And the audience will invariably say, well, I feel good. Like when you give someone a salary increase or when you give them more authority or responsibility or delegate to them, how are you enriched by that? And, and the supervisors will say, well, you know, I felt so wonderful. That was the best experience of my life when I told that person, um, you know, she'd become a, an associate vice president. That's what reciprocity means, that when you share power with someone else, it's a gift to yourself. You are giving to yourself and to your own growth and to your own enrichment. And it's not one way And that you just uh, are asking others to share power with you. And the concept of reciprocal empowerment, it is a values-based, it's a moral framework, which um, encompasses self-determination and it's the right of every individual in the workplace to say who they are. Uh, and to be who they are to the extent that you know of course the workplace permits that. It also includes distributive justice, the fact that your processes in your organization are fair, that everyone has access to opportunities and it includes collaboration and decision making so that um, when you're at the table, if you see women and minorities sitting at your decision-making table, do they have a voice? Can they actually, Say something? Can they speak? Are they interrupted? Are they neglected? Are they marginalized? Are they excluded? If so, then you will not have attained the reciprocal empowerment necessary for them to participate in decision making. And decision making is the litmus test of this aspect of reciprocal empowerment. If they have no decision making authority, they're not really there they're just there, they're invisible still. So that's the goal is to transform organizations so employees will have those attributes and the, the payoff, the, uh, the bottom line is that the business, the firm, the corporation will provide better service. As you know, if you've ridden on Southwest Airlines, you know what it means when they are able to make jokes and they give out more snacks than the so-called regular airlines or, you know, you see the transformation of the workplace where their uh, employees are participating in realizing the goals of the business, the corporation, the educational institution. They're engaged, they're happy, they're productive, and they feel psychologically safe in those environments. And uh, it is immeasurable uh, they will stay at their organizations, they won't leave, and maybe they'll get a little less pay, but they'll say to you, I'm happy I'm here because I can, you know, I'm excited about my work, I'm contributing, I know I'm making a difference, I'm willing to stay for $2,000 less a year than to go down the street, and I feel uh, recognized, and I have a voice. So those are the key characteristics that will enable organizations to keep their employees in this, uh, you know, it's a competitive world. And they want their talent will differentiate them from other organizations. So to differentiate themselves, it is what their employees will bring to the table that will differentiate them from another organization. And if their employees are not diverse, uh, they will not have the tremendous advantage to be gained from the ideas, the talent that diverse employees bring to
0: the workplace. How do you take a company from the point of fear of diversity and token hiring of minorities? I don't know if that phrase makes sense, but essentially hiring the occasional minority or hiring someone, for example, in the role of diversity but nowhere else. How do you get to that point in a corporation or in an academic environment to one of reciprocal environment? How do you accomplish that? Again, a very interesting question. Um, what I've
1: discovered, and particularly in recent years, is that it's n- people will never change their minds simply by lectures or PowerPoints or an occasional diversity lecturer floating in. You've got to attack the very real issues, the fears you've talked about. You've got to get below the surface. You've got to surface what people are really feeling and let them talk about it. And you've got to have those difficult dialogues. Um, I believe one of the most powerful instruments um, in changing people's minds is uh, you have to affect their emotions. And emotions are very involved in how people feel about people that are different from themselves. Um, there, there are what we might call racist emotions. Uh, the literature, the scholarly literature, has talked about that. That people have uh, uh, things that are evoked very deep in people that may date back from their childhood. Um, these are very difficult to eradicate. And, you know, they come into play in the workplace in different ways and shapes and forms. But to touch upon people and change them was the real challenge uh, so that they will be willing and open. And um, I found something uh, very interesting in my recent uh, experience where um, we've had uh, – Actors coming through and doing a diversity drama where we do skits and we illustrate principles from our book um, and we engage the audience in those skits. It's a dramatization technique. And the audience then gets to participate. Um, for example, we had one skit in which uh, we had a, a token woman, uh, minority, and her boss delegated her a very minor assignment. And then when she sat down in the meeting, every time she got to talk, he interrupted her and took over her assignment. And then we have the audience comment on that. And what was interesting about that, Elena, was we drew in people from all parts of the spectrum, people who would be normally be unwilling to engage in this discussion. And you'd ask questions and say, well, why, why did he treat her like that? And you will find a majority individual saying, well, she was a threat to him. And, you know, you will elicit from the audience uh, perspectives that begin to ask them to look at how they're looking at the world. Um, and another wonderful concept, Elaine, is the concept of unintentional intolerance uh, that was introduced to me through um, a workshop that I attended. And that is that people may not even realize sometimes that they're doing these things. Uh, and when you call their attention to what they're doing um, and you talk about it and you get it out in the open, you will begin to erode uh, some of the behaviors, some of the barriers uh, to inclusion. That um, are very deeply embedded, not only in people's minds, but in our corporations, firms, and institutions. Because it's not just a matter of individual change, it's a matter of organizational change. It's a macro level change that
0: has to occur. It's interesting because you talked about emotion in this particular uh, part of our conversation. And deep emotion is what comes to mind when I think of something that is on so many of our minds these days because, of course, the threats from Al-Qaeda that obviously are resulting in discrimination, and if not active discrimination, certainly fear of people from a Muslim background. How? How? do you deal with that? Because a minute ago, you were also talking about, um, I forget the word that you used, a form of discrimination or a form of rejection, perhaps, that mm-hmm. you are not even aware that you're doing. And I think a lot of people, without even meaning to, may be reacting viscerally when they see someone wearing the garments that imply that someone is Muslim because they're afraid. How do you deal with such deep, emotions especially in a case like this where they're based in, in real fears from a minority within the group but real fears nonetheless
1: well uh, I think that uh, you know some of the most interesting literature around this uh, there's a book by Joe Fagan who's a great um, mentor of mine and, and, and a, a, one of the most outspoken and honest authors about race uh, issues Um it, in his book Two-Faced Racism, Joe points out that you can um, uh, you can ask people, you can intervene in situations in which you hear this going on. He did a uh, by the way, he was our speaker at our Language of Inclusion Day at Broward College last year and um, he illustrated to our students ways that when they see these kinds of things occurring, they can intervene, and it becomes very concrete. For example, as you mentioned, if someone makes a comment about someone who is Muslim and you know they have to be a member of Al-Qaeda or something like that, what Joe documented was that in most cases, people will simply stand by and say nothing, and what he encourages people to do is to intervene. Now, he knows how hard that is sometimes when it's a peer group or, you know, it's not comfortable to do that. So he suggested to our students ways that they could intervene. Like his first suggestion is to interrupt the flow of discriminatory statements. So if someone is going off about Muslims, which happens quite a bit today, you can break the flow in any way you can. Say, well, I really don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, that doesn't seem fair to me. Or, you know, uh, how is it that we're targeting this group of people when they, when I know there are good people? Anything that breaks the flow of the conversation is important to intervene. So the flow of someone's, you know, Sentiments and, and often racist sentiments can be broken that way, and then um, you can make gentle suggestions like, "Could we change the tone of this conversation? I think we're getting, you know, off off base here," um, uh, so that you steer the conversation away from uh, those statements. Depending on the situation, you may want to say, you know, uh, just very clearly, "This is this is wrong. This is uh, stereotypical," and. Uh, I'll just give you an example. The other day, I, uh, my hairdresser was making some comments that were, um, I believe, stereotypical about uh, somebody stealing something from his car, and I immediately said to him, "Do you know what you're creating? There is a stereotype, and why would you assume that that was the person that stole something from your car?" And he stopped short in his tracks and he said, "Well, well, well you're right. You know, I." I hadn't thought of that, Uh, you know, know, some of my best friends were, and so um, just to break the flow of the conversation, introduce something different, introduce a different paradigm into the conversation, and then you move from being a passive bystander to actually someone that that can help change people's perceptions and, and call attention to what they may unintentionally be doing in a conversation.
0: Would that be a part of the organizational learning process and the diversity transformation process that you've been referring to?
1: Yes, uh, Elena, thank you. That's a tremendous lead into to the book, Bridging the Diversity Divide, that Alvin Evans and I wrote. And our, one of our major theses is that uh, how do we make a transformational change in an organization, a corporation, a large entity? and the term that we use is organizational learning. It's emerged in the literature. Uh, Originally, we talked about learning organizations, but now we talk about organizational learning. It's an active and dynamic process by which organizations, just like people, overcome defensive reasoning, defensive avoidance, and uh, categorization of people, a state of inertia, and acquire greater organizational intelligence by enabling them to change the culture of the organization. And the whole purpose of organizational change is cultural change. How your organization, if you walked around to the water cooler, when you listen into the informal conversations, when you catch the winds of the culture of your organization, you will find that's what people really believe. That's what people really assume about others. That's what really people say about others. So you've got to change those conversations. It's not coming about through coercion, but it's coming about through a learning process. And the organization in a systematic way has to change the culture. And that can only happen on a, a macro scale if there are systematic efforts. It can't be you know, the diversity lecture once a year. It can't be uh, it has to permeate. And another important point in this is that there has to be some accountability for this process. It can't all be voluntary in the sense that there must be, the organization itself must promote this type of learning, must require this type of learning, and hold people accountable for it. And as part of that, um, Broward College is again holding our second Language of Inclusion Day on February 5, 2010, we will be inviting a wonderful speaker, a uh, professor Paul Bonilla Silva, who has written an incredible book called "Racism Without Racists," uh, which examines the fact that there really uh, the so-called colorblindness is not a reality in the United States today, and we still have to bridge the gap between uh, you know what people say they they believe and what they really believe, um, and we will be celebrating that with our faculty staff and students and having some of those difficult conversations and i want to add elaine another fabulous program that we're introducing here in partnership with our equity committee is a program called intergroup dialogue which um, i believe would have great viability in the corporate world as well but it's been begun at the university of michigan and it's a, a program where you have trained facilitators who bring together people to talk about difference and and about bridging those differences, um, and uh, provide uh, people the uh, the forum in which to examine their own views, to express them openly without fear of, of you know what other people might think, and to come to new understandings of how to work together. And our students are the powerful young people who have the potential to change these mindsets. Uh, that have been in place for a while, and uh, so it's a vanguard of where I think organizations near, need to go into getting into these difficult dialogues and to actually facilitating them in the workplace, uh, giving work time, and giving uh, funding, support, and resources to conducting these dialogues uh, in the effort to transform the culture and promote um, overall
0: organizational learning. In looking at this organizational change and this transformation in favor of diversity, do these policies have to come from the top? Does it have to be the executive level of an organization, whether it's academic, institutional, in mean, the government, or a corporation? Does it have to be a top-centered policy, or can it be a grassroots effort started by, for example, students and faculty who are exposed to the types of events and ideas that you've been discussing with us. How does this transformation get started? Oh, that's a very interesting
1: question also. There has been um, some cases in recent history in higher education where diversity was tried they tried to initiate diversity at to the top. Um, and uh it failed because they failed to bring in the stakeholders um, at into the effort and um, we we cited a couple of examples where pressure from students particularly um, has brought about diversity institutions it started with students um, so uh you know we had a, a very significant Uh, incident in in the state of Oregon, one of the uh, public universities there, tried to implement a diversity plan which was overturned and and caused tremendous outrage among the faculty and staff because it had come simply without building the infrastructure among the stakeholders. Um, So the appropriate way, I believe, to do it in the more effective way is to create alliances at different levels in the organization Um, to help um, bring about an institutional goal or an organizational goal of diversity. Um, And they found that these efforts, which can be nucleuses or nuclei of committed individuals, it doesn't have to be large groups, but it can be several, for example, several faculty who have a tremendous interest in diversity that can be stakeholders. And we've seen this successful model in a number of institutions. They have diversity councils where they create uh, support in the different organizational sectors that have to be brought into play. In academia, it's very complicated. You've got students, you've got faculty, you've got staff, you've got administrators and all of them contribute in some way. So you've got to get all of these entities together and you can't simply assume that if you go out and make a speech uh, in a public forum that that's going to happen. So there is a lot of um, you know work that has to go on with people who really care about this, who can be the leaders, who can galvanize their constituent groups to work together collaboratively. And another point that my co-author Alvin Evans and I like to make is that even among minorities, there has been a tendency to be separatists with their own minority group. We can't have that. We have to have everyone all minorities, women, people who are what we call our traditional protected classes working together um, in alliances, those strategic alliances have greater potential for impact uh, on the organization. If we work across we work with our commonalities with the struggles that we've all had as women and minorities, with our common understandings, of how we need to um, achieve this transformation. Uh, the inspiration will come from the ranks, the rank and file. It will come from people who have, um, you know, sort of toiled in, in, the, in the back uh, room. It will come from those who, have, who are still trying to uh, penetrate the administrative ranks. It will come from those who are at the top. But we have to have people at all levels of the organization, and we have to um, deploy their their uh, excitement to get some momentum going in our organizations.
0: For our business-oriented audience, would you share three tips, three things that they can do today after listening to our conversation to get things started. They can be little things or they can be big things, however you think is appropriate. But three steps that they can take in their own environment, in their own lives, toward diversity. What three things would you recommend?
1: The first thing is for your executives' accountability. Diversity will not happen without making someone in the organization accountable. And and I will use someone in the plural because it really will be your key executives, each one should be held accountable for diversity results. Uh, we see a tremendous example, for example, in, in the Sodexo Corporation, where this, the bonuses are calibrated to diversity results. And uh, you, you get uh, recognition through a compensation process for uh, attaining those results. Conversely, if you fail to achieve them, you should be held accountable uh, through performance evaluation, um, you know, coaching, mentoring, uh, because this is something that no organization today can ignore. So the first tip is set up an accountability system for attaining diversity. The second tip is measurement. You've got to measure results. Um, I mentioned statistics before. There is nothing uh, – if people can get away with, okay, I, I brought in a speaker last year or, uh, you know, I really believe in this stuff, but, uh, you know, I didn't have a chance to make any hires this year because, you know, I didn't have any vacancies and the pools weren't rich and I couldn't find any diver- – if that kind of rhetoric will be replaced measurement, then you will never improve your diversity in your organization. So you've got to have a measurement system. There's some excellent new books out there. On diversity measurement Um, in the university and system we use what we call a diversity strategic plan. I'm sure many corporations have similar plans, but there are goals, strategies, resources, and outcomes that are there. The third tip is look below the surface. Look for patterns. Look at your revolving door. Who have you lost and why? And, uh, for example, there was a major study done in California universities. Again, I bring this in because it is a data I'm familiar with, that when they looked at who has left their organizations, it was the minority faculty. And, in fact, they were spinning their wheels because they were refilling those same vacancies over and over again. And they were trying to address a need for diversity because they kept losing their diverse employees. What are the patterns in your uh, loss of talent? And how are you supporting minority and women employees in their advancement in your organization so that you don't lose the diverse talent that you do have and that you're constantly recruiting to fill the same vacancies that you just filled? Um, to er eradicate that self-defeating hiring process that Roosevelt Thomas has talked about a great deal. um, You've got to look at retention and you've got to look at the workplace and whether it's a welcoming, inclusive environment.
0: So to summarize your three suggestions, make the system accountable. Make someone accountable for the diversity efforts. Measure results and look below the surface is that right yes thank you Edna for joining us today from Fort Lauderdale Florida and to our audience thank you for listening to Edna Chun PhD She is Vice President of Human Resources and Equity at Broward College, who discussed Bridging the Diversity Divide, based on a book by the same title that she co-authored. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the Hispanic NPR website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.